Father, we thank you for the book of Acts that we're studying that gives us certainty about the gospel and its progress and the application to us as a church, each of us individually, one step forward. What's the one step forward that we will take in our personal evangelism? And if all of us, all 400 of us across the church family take one step forward, then we'll take one big step forward as a church in holding out the gospel or embracing the work of the gospel in the world, whatever dimension it is of evangelism and mission. And we pray that that practical encouragement will uh, impress itself on us this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, Luke uh, records the promise of Jesus that uh, Ian read at the beginning of his gospel. Let me just read it again uh, for us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we come this morning to Luke uh, chapter 8, page 916, which is where the first major fulfillment of that promise about the gospel going out from Jerusalem happens. So we're reading about the first major movement of the gospel in the history of the church in fulfillment of Jesus' promise. And it's been in the context of significant opposition, both internally and externally, all of which culminated in chapter 7 in Luke's description of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. The opposition is fierce but the gospel goes forward. So let's pick up the narrative reading at the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Lord and the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Amen. Now, if you see the back of the service sheet, I want to uh, draw out from this one big picture uh, point, a kind of Google Earth, um, above the trees, uh, point, and then two um, more practical applied principles down in the, in the ground in the, the kind of grist to the mill, the muck of life, the reality of uh, evangelism. Now, the big picture point, uh, be certain that Jesus' promise will be uh, fulfilled. And uh, you'll understand why Luke makes such a, a emphasis on this at this point in the narrative. Now, the promise 
we read a couple of times that the gospel will go to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let me take you into what may have gone on when Jesus said that promise to his disciples. They were all there and he said it to them and we know it's come true. But as soon as the word Samaria was mentioned back then, uh, Peter would have turned uh, to John and said, I don't think so. (laughs) No way or that's impossible. It might go through Samaria, but it will get to Judea because there's no way the gospel could uh, captivate people in Jerusalem and then in Samaria. And almost certainly Thomas would have said, no way, no way. So have that in your mind. That's the promise. And here we see it in chapter 8 being fulfilled. So just look again at chapter 8, verse 1. A persecution arose against the church and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. All except the apostles, verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word all over Judea and Samaria. Philip, he's one of the seven chosen in chapter 6, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now, this is such a significant event in the history of the church. It is the first major movement of the gospel out from Jerusalem, the first major step forward in fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And Luke, the writer, just wants to emphasize for us what a a significant thing it is when this promise is first fulfilled. And he he makes uh, or, or, or explains to us the importance, the significance of this event by highlighting three things. And let me just quickly show you them, and then we'll get on to the practical points two and three. The first thing that's unusual here is that Philip, who is not an apostle, performs uh, miracles. So we read in chapter 8, verse 6, uh, the crowds paid attention to Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Uh, Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, Philip is not an apostle. He is one of the seven chosen by the apostles, chapter 6, verse 5, but he is not an apostle. And in our studies of Acts, we've said again and again that the apostles, people like Peter and John, had a special designation. They were the ones who give us the true and authentic gospel of Jesus. And the Lord Jesus accredits the apostles' special place in the church by giving them authority and identity as he performs miracles through them. Now, you may remember uh, when Peter was uh, speaking that there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved by Jesus' name. Uh, He just healed someone, and and that's to give him authority and an identity. And Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, performed miracles to give him authority to establish his identity. And we've been saying uh, all along in our studies of Acts, that's not normal. It's not normative now for people to do these things like the apostles did, like Jesus did. But Philip's not an apostle. So why is he doing it? 
Or if you went back a couple of pages and you read about Stephen. He's not an apostle, and yet he does stuff like this as well. Stephen and Philip doing stuff that only apostles do. And they are exceptions. You're not going to find other examples across the New Testament. Why do these two, Stephen and Philip, do these things? The answer is because they are at either side of the line of the first major significant advance of the gospel in history out from Jerusalem. So Stephen is on the left-hand side of the movement. He's the martyr that causes the movement, and Philip is the first evangelist in Samaria. And so what God is doing, or Jesus is doing, is he's saying, look, these guys are performing miracles because I want you to know that this event is so significant in the fulfillment of uh, my promise. Now, the second thing that uh, attests to the significance of this moment is the, uh, the, the extraordinary divine uh, organization of the events uh, described. Now, God is always sovereign. He's always at work, uh, working things for the progress of the gospel. But here it is very, very overt, so that it is unmistakably clear to us that this is God's uh, work. For example, the very catalyst to the expansion of the gospel is the opposition. There's a little hint for what follows in chapter 9. The man who ravages the church, Saul, Roger will show us next week, how extraordinarily God turns his heart around and he proclaims the gospel. Now, the conversion of Saul is not normal. It's just God at this early stage. And 2,000 years later, as we read this stuff, saying to us, you can have absolute confidence in the promise. That's the point. I think the best example, though, is at the end of the account of uh, Philip with this man in his chariot. Just read with me uh, chapter 8, verse 39 again. When they came up out of the water, just to say that uh, depending on what particular Baptist line your commentary takes, uh, some seek to argue that the, because this was a desert place, there was only enough water for sprinkling. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, this was definitely full immersion. Uh, it doesn't matter, though. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord, now this is extraordinary, he carried Philip away. I mean, he was, he was transported away. That's not normal. It's miraculous. These little details are lost in this. We're so quick to, to look at what we can learn from Philip and about evangelism and the Ethiopian and his chariot and draw dotted lines to the equivalents of chariots now. But this is extraordinary. These events are extraordinary. They are singular. They are striking. And, and perhaps the most unusual or extraordinary thing that marks the significance of this moment in the church is the delay in the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, it's really important that we understand what this means. Look closely with me, and we need to look at the text here in detail, verses 14 to 17. When the apostles at Jerusalem 
heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here? It is absolutely clear from the whole of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is received by a believer at the point of their conversion. Now, how do we know that? You cannot be converted to Christ without the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus that indwells the believer when they are converted, thus bringing to them all the benefits of salvation in Christ. That's why the New Testament always describes a Christian as someone who is in Christ, or someone in whom Christ lives. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your inner being, and the Holy Spirit is a person, the person of Christ in you, and all that his death achieved, and all that his resurrection life achieves is given to you at that moment. Let me give you just one reference from outside Acts, a very helpful one, Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So let me just make that alive for us in the room now. In Christ, you also, whoever you are, and maybe you're simply here today for Ephesians 1.13 because you're not a Christian yet. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, come to Christ, trust in him. When you heard that, which is the gospel, the good news of your salvation, when you believed in him right now, when you believe in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Not down the track, no. No. I think we get confused on this because in my life, the Holy Spirit lives because Christ lives in me. The problem is, the Holy Spirit simply hasn't yet got all of me. And we need to be emboldened, empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit in the sense that we let go or put off our sin and let the Holy Spirit have, its, have His course, not its, never its, His course in our lives. It's a bit like if my life is, is like a ship in enemy hands and I become a Christian and the Holy Spirit takes the bridge the Holy Spirit has my inner being. I am fundamentally Christ's. But my life, like a ship, even though the bridge is taken, has all sorts of parts of it that are still needing to be released. Now, hopefully that makes things clear for us. And the delay here in Acts 8, the delay here is not normal. It's unusual, and it's meant to show us that this event 
is of such significance that it's going to be, if you like, a mirror of Pentecost back in chapter 2. The other reason the Holy Spirit is delayed is because Jesus wants the Samaritan Christians to know, and he wants the Jewish Christians to know, that there is absolutely no difference between them. So that one group can't say to the other group, well, you had the big guns, Peter and John. And that's why the big guns, the Jewish apostles, were sent down to Samaria to bring the Holy Spirit uh, to them. You imagine in the early church, if there were arguments between the Jewish Christians and the Samaritan Christians, who were like chalk and cheese. I went to watch Celtic demolish Hibernian last night. They were wonderful. They really were. It was just great to watch. It's like Rangers and Celtic, or whatever else your comparison is. And you just would not want either side to think that they had a special, special, special blessing from God. So that's what's going on uh, here. Now, hopefully Luke has convinced us and persuaded us that this is a significant moment in the history of the church when the gospel went from Jerusalem into Samaria, the first fulfillment of God's promise. And you're sitting here and you're thinking, yes, I'm convinced, but so what? So what? Not so what why I have spent all that time, but why does Luke spend all this time saying to us, this is such an important event? Here's the so what, so that we can have certainty, so that we know absolutely for sure that Jesus, when he makes a promise, he will fulfill that promise. Why do we need that certainty? Because wherever we are in history, whatever country we're in, whatever street we're in, whatever neighborhood we're in, whatever evangelism we try to do, it will never, ever feel like wherever we are that Jesus' promise is going to be fulfilled. Never. When Mark comes to speak to us in two weeks' time from a country where we think the gospel is moving forward rapidly, and it is, but there are still billions of people who don't know Jesus, he will tell us it never feels for a moment that things are going to move forward anymore. It's all going to come to a juddering halt. It's all going to come to a juddering halt at the time in history I live. Because look at the walls in front of us, the walls of apathy or the walls of antagonism. They will never, ever, ever break down. And that's why when the first major movement of the gospel happened, Luke says, slow down, slow down, and let me just make it absolutely clear to you that this promise is fulfilled by the supernatural power of God. Be certain that Jesus' promise has been, is being, will be fulfilled. Now, we're about to send David Losher off to join Kirsten and the team in Gracemount. As elders, we recently had an evening with Andy Robertson to hear about the, the beginnings of the gospel work in Charleston, and it is so fragile so fragile. People who are converted out of addiction, 
so likely to fall away, so fragile. Redeemer, what a risk. What a risk. Generation in Scotland looking to plant 30 churches in the next 20 years, no chance. Or on a bigger scale in Scotland, there is no way, humanly speaking, that the rising tide of secularism can be checked and the gospel can thrive again. That's what we feel, that's what it looks like, and Jesus says to us, the gospel will go to the end of the earth. And we must keep returning to his promise. There's a little word in Acts, uh, spelled D-E-I in Greek. It occurs 40 times, and it means it must happen. It must happen. Now, take this great promise to your heart. And it's good for us to wrestle in our Bibles with theology, but it's also good to us to wrestle with the facts that the gospel will go and is going to the end of the earth. Put spring in our step, confidence. Now, let's get to the practical stuff, and you'll see two headings. We'll come down now into the into the wood, into the trees, into the tangles, into the branches of real life. Two points. Firstly, be certain that the gospel goes forward to new and surprising places. Now, we know that Jesus said the gospel will go out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But as I said earlier, had you lived in the first century world, you would have seen that as a very surprising, perhaps even impossible place for the gospel to go. Given the tensions and the history there is just no way Samaria would be receptive to the gospel. Yet, that's where it went. That's where the first major movement was to Samaria. And it's striking that the first major movement of the gospel was to an impossible place. Not like the 10th or the 20th movement when the impetus had been running. The first big movement was to an unlikely place. There was genuine and real response to the gospel. And that is a surprise. If you were to sit down and have a discussion back then, if you were to sit down and have a mission planning strategic meeting, you would not have plunked for Samaria. Why is that important that we see that? Because we need to be certain that the gospel goes forward to new and unlikely places, which cautions us against assuming that the gospel cannot go there or it's not going to happen there. And why is this so important? Because if we think, where do we think the gospel can go in a city or a country or a region of the world or a country of the world? If we think, where do we think it's going to go, all of a sudden we're going to shrink the globe to about 20%. Or we're going to shrink Scotland to 20%. Oh, God has said to us that the vision for Scotland must be through the cities. How do we know that? How do we know that? 
what we see in history in terms of renewal or revival is the gospel springs up in all sorts of likely, unlikely places and some likely ones. We need to be careful not to narrow our horizons as to how and where which particular ministries will be the most effective or how the building we have, which is not here, when we get to refurbish, it will be used most effectively to spread the gospel. One of the godsends to us is that we've had two or three years to think and pray about it. How are we going to use it? And let's not limit God. Now, right in front of me, and it's been niggling me for about two minutes, so I need to say it out loud, Dick Anderson, you just sat in the wrong place, Dick. How many years ago? 60 years ago, Dick and Joan had a strong sense of vision from the Lord to take the gospel to the Turkana people in Africa. And we're told, you must be daft. You can't live there. You can't take Western family there. But God didn't think it was daft. And the gospel is there. And people have become Christians. And there are churches established. That's normal. People like Sam and Andy Robertson are part of the Generation Church Planting Network in Scotland. Generation's vision to plant churches in Scotland is a good one. They would ask us to pray for impetus. They would ask us to pray for planning, but they would ask us to pray that they would sit light to planning lest they do not have an expansive enough vision to watch where God is growing His church in this country. So, for example, 20 years ago, had you said, what about the borders of Scotland, which is a, is a tough place for the gospel? But now the borders has a railway. And in each of the major borders towns, there is either a new living church or one about to start in the next five years. And God has put it into the hearts of half a dozen people to go there and work together. And God has moved people physically into the borders who have lots of money, who are going to pay for these churches. And the green shoots will come up there, which is wonderful. Across the world, where is the gospel going to spring up next? It is striking that North Korea is in our news every day. Every day. And who knows if the next set of global talks will lead to some kind of deal and concession so that Western industry and Western wealth can pour into North Korea. And the concession is the door that has been shut to the gospel is just slightly ajar. And every time the gospel goes somewhere new or somewhere surprising or somewhere different, it is just a reminder that the power of Jesus is at work. Why does Jesus keep breaking down obstacles and doing the impossible to show us 
that his gospel is supernatural. It is devoid of human strategy and planning. And all the time it builds up our confidence in Jesus. Now, we have not got any time today to say anything about this man, Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer, apart from the fact that he's probably the first ever prosperity preacher in the church. What's he there for? I mean, he's there for because it happened. But what's it all about? I think it's just just distraction at a time of major progress, just like it always is. So, you know, Simon the Sorcerer, here's this vanguard moment as the gospel goes out and, you know, they have to have 20 church meetings to work out what to do with this fellow. And they have to have a special commission from the presbytery or whatever. It's just distraction. It's just real. It's normal. And uh, he's a striking fellow, Simon. He looks like a true believer. Verse 12, when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached the good news, even Simon, verse 13, believed continued with Philip, but he's a fraud, uh, as the narrative makes clear. Verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord Jesus. Simon said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Sounds like there's contrition in his heart. Did he repent? We don't know. He sounded like a believer, but he wasn't. He looked apart, but he wasn't. And I just wonder if there's anyone sitting here and you look the part and don't fall into the trap of thinking I'm meaning that the person in front of you looks... I'm not the part any more than you are. But I am converted. I know that. I should know that. And you know if you're converted. You might just look the part, but you're not a Christian. And that's the verse for you. Pray for me to the Lord. Repent and believe. Now, lastly, be certain that the gospel goes forward to new and surprising people. Now, we thought about the gospel going forward to new and surprising places. And, and, and the take home of that, or the one step forward, is to expand your horizons. The earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24. Not a third of it, or that bit, or this bit. The earth is the Lord. Scotland is the Lord's. Edinburgh is the Lord's. Morningside, Grace Mine is the Lord's. Don't limit your horizons. And secondly, don't limit your horizons about who it is that the gospel goes to as individuals. Now, this uh, Ethiopian eunuch is a surprising figure. He is a wealthy civil servant. He is a court official of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. Now, We've thought about how the gospel goes to new and surprising places. What about new and surprising people? Who might you and I think is not a good prospect? Who do you and I think is unlikely to respond to the gospel? Here's the people I think in Morningside will not respond to the gospel. The really, really, really rich people. So walk along some of these streets in Morningside and some of these houses are pretty massive. I don't think they will ever respond to the gospel. And then Jesus would say to us, well, are you so sure? How do you know? How do you know? Nor do I think, if I'm really honest, and I'm happy to make this confession to you, the really poor people who beg for money in Morningside. I don't think they'll respond either. I think they're just after money to buy drink. 
which they might well be. And Jesus says to us, how do you know? How do you know? Or people from other faiths. Yes, there are complexities and restrictions about sharing our gospel with people from other faiths, but my automatic assumption is there's no way they're going to respond to the gospel. Or, as Roger will show us next week, really, really hostile people, not just like Saul, but just people who are grumpy. Or people at Stephen's funeral on Thursday, and mostly they're men, who will stand there, and when we sing a hymn, they will refuse to sing. So I will probably say something as the minister. Come on, I know it's hard to sing in a funeral, but let's just make this a different kind. And for Stephen's sake, I want you all to sing. I don't say that, they won't. How do any of us know what's going on in their hearts when we see their faces? We should not presume that the gospel cannot go to that place which looks impossible, and we should not ever presume that the gospel cannot go to that person. Now, don't get me wrong here, and don't get Luke wrong. Oftentimes, the gospel does go to the person that you think is open to the gospel. I mean, it does that too. It's not that God is always leading us to odd places and to odd people. What he's saying to us is, think of the community where you live. Think of the block of flats, or think of the street, or think of whatever it is. Think of all the people in their gardens where we live. They're all out in their gardens. And if you have a bad garden in Meadowspot, disaster. So they come and give you advice. I hope you're not listening. And we chat to them all. Who is it that is open to the gospel? I don't know. But let's not think it's the people on that side of the street or that side of the street or that age or people who do the same job as me or whatever. We don't know. The point is, don't limit your horizons. The harvest fields are vast and white, as the hymn goes. All of them. All of them. Last week, I encouraged us to be thinking and praying about taking one step forward in our personal evangelism. Not a blind step forward, but based on the certainty about the gospel we're learning in the book of Acts. So on the basis of this certainty that the gospel goes forward to new and surprising places and to new and surprising people, can I encourage us all to take one step forward out of our comfort zones or out of a mindset that is narrow or off-limits to where God could be at work? Perhaps look for opportunities to share the gospel with people you would never think could be interested or open to it. Perhaps begin to pray for a country in the world that you think is off-limits to the gospel. Or pray for one, like Scotland, which has had the gospel and has drifted a long way from it. One step forward in our minds. One step forward in our praying. Or one step forward in our... They're all one step. They're not five steps forward. So pick one of them. One step forward in our expectation that God will put people in our path, not in chariots, but on a train... Isn't it striking when people more and more say that when you pick up your Bible and sit in a train and someone will talk to you? Or they have their Bible in a train or they read a book. When I see someone with a Bible in a train, what do I do? I do that with my newspaper. Or we might even move seats. Ask God to put people into your path. 
And if when they're sitting opposite you on the train or the bus or wherever it is, they do not look like they're going to respond because they don't look like you, how do you know? How do you know? If you find somebody on the train reading Isaiah chapter 53, well, that's your lucky day. Do you know, though, what I would do if I saw somebody reading Isaiah 53 often? I wouldn't say a thing. What do, you, what do we do? We say, what, what are you reading? What's that you're reading? I just noticed you're reading your Bible. Do you understand it? Or more likely, it's to happen the other way around. You are reading your Bible. What you should do if you are reading your Bible is think about where you sit down. Now, that just contradicted myself. Don't sit down next to three empty seats. Sit down where other people are. And when they see you reading your Bible and they speak to you about it as they do, don't do what I have done in the past and just get people off the subject. It's terrible. And here's the deal. You know, he's reading Isaiah, and he doesn't understand it, and he asks you a difficult question, and what's the answer? The answer is always Jesus, and you saw it here in Luke. The answer is always Jesus. Wherever you are in the Bible, the answer is always Jesus. And you can do no work. What's all this about? It's about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus and the gospel. The answer is always Jesus, and we are all capable of telling people about Jesus. Do you understand? That could be the one step forward. The one step forward could be getting on a train. Maybe none of you go on trains. Maybe it's just me. Maybe the one step forward is getting onto a train next time you go on a train and thinking, Lord Jesus, put me beside somebody. Just put me beside somebody and help me to engage them in a conversation, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is. But the big take-home today is do not limit your horizons about where God could be at work in this city, in this country, or in the world. And do not limit your horizons about in whose life God could be at work in this city, in your courses, in your flats, in your neighborhoods, in your networks. And when you lack courage, go back and read Luke chapter 8 and just let it sink into you that God is wanting you to know that he will fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the very practical and helpful teaching in this chapter and the big, big dose of certainty at the start. Help us, Lord, to take one step forward, whatever it is, and may we be thrilled to see that as we take one step forward, you are always one step ahead of us. Lord, bring people into our paths. Bring people into our lives. Bring us into theirs. Expand our vision for global missions. Help us to pick up a country that we've hitherto not prayed for because it's too hard. Help us to pick the hardest places to pray for them. And maybe some of us even to go. And thank you for the wonderful, wonderful, steadying motivation 
and love and grace that is on display through these elements of bread and wine pointing us to the cross. Grant us now your blessing as we come to the Lord's table. For Jesus' sake. Amen.